Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey there, all you cool cats and kittens. CJ here, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man for this new dark age in which we find ourselves in the midst. Welcome to episode 203 of the Dangerous History Podcast. 36 documentary films to watch on streaming during Tiatwaki, that's the end of the world as we know it, part two. And in this episode, I'm going to be going over films number 13 through 24 on my non-rated anyway list of some of my favorite documentary films to watch that are, at least as of this recording, currently available somewhere to watch on streaming. Like I mentioned last time, the final installment of this, my final dozen films, is going to be a bonus episode just for my $5 and up per month supporters on Patreon and Subscribestar. And that'll be coming out probably in the next few weeks. Now, real quickly, I feel like I gotta mention the elephant, or that is to say, the big dangerous cat in the room, speaking of documentaries, which is, of course, Tiger King on Netflix, as I alluded to in my Carol Baskin-esque introduction to this episode. Now, that's a documentary series. It's not going to get a place on my list, but I will say it was entertaining as hell. It was one of the most entertaining and addictive documentary series I've ever seen. Now, there are some questions about some aspects of it in terms of does it tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, etc. I won't get into that here. I'm not an expert on it. I've just heard and read some things that were left out of the story that potentially might have made Joe Exotic look even worse than he already did, and that might at least put Carol Baskin in a slightly better light than Tiger King made her out to be. Not that either of these people seem to be great, but I think it was right around the time that I released part one of my 36 documentary films to watch during Tiadwaki, that Tiger King was coming out, and I think I watched it shortly after I made that episode. And I will say, it was addictive as all get out, and particularly in the early, hard stages of quarantine. If nothing else, it will entertain you and kill some time if you still need it. If you're still in a place where, for whatever reason, you're still quarantining a fair amount of the time, and you're okay with sort of the delicious junk food of documentaries, then yeah, go check out Tiger King. It definitely entertained the hell out of myself and my wife. Now, as I mentioned in the last installment of this series in part one of 36 documentary films, a couple quick points before we jump into this one. First, plot spoiler alert, probably not a big deal in most of these films, but there might be one or two here where you could argue 
There are some things to spoil, I don't know, whatever. Like last time, I'm going to give a very brief synopsis of what each film is about, and why I like it, and why I think it's important, and why I think the DHP audience in particular might like it, that sort of stuff. So fair warning as far as plot spoilers go. Second thing, remember, these aren't in any particular order or ranked in any way. The numbering is somewhat random and arbitrary of kind of when they occurred to my brain when I was brainstorming exactly which films I wanted to recommend. Next thing, as before, I'm going to mention where, as of this recording, I know that a particular film is available to watch. Most of them are free of charge with a streaming service like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime. There's a few that are available currently on YouTube, and there might be a very small number that, you know, you can watch them on Prime, but it costs two, three bucks to rent them or whatever. So with each film, I will be saying where it is, at least that I know of currently, that it's available to watch. Last thing I'll say, and this goes for all 36 of the films I'm going to mention, I am not in any way saying I agree with every point made by any of these films that I've personally investigated and verified all of the narratives and claims and stories and facts contained in them, or anything like that. More that I found them interesting, I found them entertaining, and I found them each in their own ways making me think about things. And whether or not every single claim or every single narrative put forth in a documentary is true, as long as it's not just complete, like, horseshit, like History Channel's Ancient Aliens or something like that, where it's just making shit up and making wild leaps of logic and reasoning and making wild claims with virtually no evidence or perhaps no evidence at all, other than documentaries that are that just off the wall. Most documentaries that are at least based on a fair amount of true information or at least true testimony, will teach you something, will have some potential value. And of course, I would recommend if any of these documentaries really interest you in that particular subject matter, by all means, look up additional sources if you really want to have a handle on what's going on. And, you know, it's very common, just as with history books and anything else, that something might get a lot of stuff right and get a few important things wrong. But that doesn't negate the entire value of the thing, of the source. And one more thing I want to say is that I definitely have more to say about some of these films than others. And so it's not going to be equal amount of time and talking covering each of them. Some of them, as with the last episode, some of them will have a little bit more to say about than others. In general, I will tend to have a bit more to say about the more quote-unquote historical type films than the ones that are not, at least in the conventional sense, history. Also, I'll probably have a little more to say about those that I've watched multiple times than those I may have only watched once or twice. And I'll probably also have more to say about those that I have rewatched most recently versus those that, regardless of how many times I may have seen them, haven't seen them in years. Also, just in general, while I do like all of the films I'm about to mention, some of them just have more meat to them than others. Some of them are longer than others, some of them have more kind of depth of information than others. And so anyway, this all kind of affects, you know, just how long I'll talk about each one. So with all those caveats, etc., etc., out of the way, let's launch into 36 documentary films to watch on streaming during Teotihuacan Part 2.
right, so lucky number 13 in the first documentary of this particular episode that I will recommend is National Bird, which is currently available on Netflix and which came out in 2016 and was directed by Sonia Kennebec. This film takes a hard, critical look at the U.S. government's drone warfare program, primarily through the point of view of three former Air Force drone operators, two female and one male, who turned whistleblowers. Although, to its credit, this film also gets the perspective of some Afghani survivors who have been on the receiving end of these drone attacks, including ones who've lost loved ones and or who have been wounded themselves. Now, regarding the Air Force drone operators, the film talks a bit about the poverty draft, so-called, and how propaganda is used to recruit naive youngsters into the military in the first place, using a combination of idealistic and patriotic sorts of propaganda, along, of course, with economic incentives for people who otherwise feel like they have no good options in life. And one thing the film reveals that a lot of people might not really think about is the effect that being a drone operator has on the one who's actually running the drones, piloting them and doing the other, you know, support roles, because it's usually actually several individuals who are performing different functions in terms of running the drone. Basically, unless you're already a psychopath or sociopath, or unless, I suppose, if you're just 100% completely, totally brainwashed into dehumanizing the alleged enemy. Unless you're in one of those categories, being a drone operator actually has a pretty likely chance of giving you PTSD. Now, a lot of people would poo-poo that and say, come on, drone operators can't get PTSD unless there's some sort of weak people or whatever. Because drone operators are thousands of miles away from the danger zone. They're flying an unmanned craft remotely. But of course, that is to misunderstand a lot of the complicated nature and causes of PTSD. While for sure, PTSD can be caused by terrible things that happen to you, or that are done to you, or that almost happen to you, or that happen perhaps to your buddies right in front of you. A lot of the most profound cases of PTSD actually involve someone being traumatized by what they themselves have done to others. In other words, you're likely to be even worse affected by killing and maiming someone else than you are to be affected by the killing and maiming that is done or almost done to you and or your buddies. And research bears this out. This is why, for example, combat medics, while they definitely can get PTSD, and I've known combat medics who had PTSD, I'm not, I'm not saying they're immune to it, but combat medics tend not to get it as badly, on average, as combat infantrymen who see similar amounts of action and danger. And the reason is theorized to be that the medic rarely does any killing himself, because he's busy being a medic. And so even though he might see horrific things, and might experience a lot of danger, he's much less likely to do any killing and maiming himself. Another thing that's interesting about PTSD that applies to drone operators is that distance from the person you're killing or trying to kill 
usually, usually decreases the likelihood and intensity of PTSD. For example, people like bomber crews and artillery operators, who rarely see the effects of what they've done close up, if at all, do tend to experience less severe rates of PTSD than, say, infantrymen who see the horrors of combat close up. Now, of course, there are exceptions. Individual human beings are all unique and complicated. And I know at least one veteran personally who was involved with firing Navy cruise missiles at targets many miles over the horizon that he never saw, who still ended up getting PTSD from that, possibly because he's maybe more empathetic or sensitive or has some other psychological idiosyncrasy. But in the aggregate, the further one is away from the recipients of one's violence, the less the prevalence of PTSD tends to be. But of course, what's so different about the drone operators from, say, people dropping bombs from high altitude is that the drone will often fly around over the kill zone for quite a long time after the strike, sometimes waiting to do one of those so-called double-tap secondary strikes and sometimes just to try to get evidence of the effect of the strike and to figure out whether or not it was quote-unquote successful. And remember that the drone crew, though they are typically on the other side of the planet, are watching video screens of all this. So as the film National Bird shows, the drone operators are staring at the dead and maimed bodies, sometimes including kids, that are the results of their actions. So you can see how this could potentially really fuck up your psychology, unless your psychology is already pretty reptilian. I give the documentary credit. It's not engaged in any partisan hackery. It's actually pretty tough on the Obama administration's usage of drones. It was made during the Obama administration, this film. And it's also very critical of the way the government tries to hide the true impact of drone strikes through deception such as, for example, automatically classifying every military-age male who's at the scene of a strike as an insurgent or terrorist or enemy combatant or whatever. That's just the default setting. Military-age male, killed by drone, must be an enemy bad guy. And this, among other techniques, is used to kind of manipulate the statistics and make it look like drone strikes kill mostly genuine bloodthirsty jihadis and only very rarely kill random innocent people when the reality is quite different. So National Bird follows the difficulties of these three former drone operators as they try to deal with their psychological issues and with legal and personal problems of being whistleblowers. Because, of course, another thing about the Obama administration is that it was one of the most aggressively anti-whistleblower administrations of all time. One of the female whistleblowers actually travels to Afghanistan with a friend who's involved with some sort of humanitarian work. And there they speak to regular Afghani people who are not, as the U.S. government likes to imply, all a bunch of jihadi crazies. And these are people who have actually been on the receiving end of drone strikes, including children who have lost family members, those family members including other children killed by drones. And they even talk to one guy who's missing a leg because of a drone attack. It really does do a good job in a short amount of time of humanizing Afghan civilians and revealing just how morally gross the U.S. government's drone operations are. 
The film also reveals how the male whistleblower starts to get targeted and harassed by the FBI. By the way, the title song of the film, National Bird, which is by Soul and DJ Payne 1, who I don't know a whole lot about, to be honest with you, is an awesome song. It's a little bit reminiscent of the style of Rage Against the Machine, mixing hip-hop with some heavy guitar riffs. Though, to be honest, I like this song way better than anything I've ever heard by Rage. I'll link to the music video on YouTube in the show notes for this episode. It is an awesome song. Even setting aside the song's lyrics and message, which of course I totally appreciate and which totally resonate with me, musically I love the song too. I just think it's a great song. So, this is by no means a fun or light-hearted documentary, to be sure. It is not something you watch for just sort of entertainment value. Frankly, parts of it are kind of hard to watch. But I think it's really well done, and I think it is really, really important. The next documentary I'll recommend is Gore Vidal, The United States of Amnesia which is currently available to watch on YouTube for free. This film came out in 2013 and was directed by Nicholas Rathall. And as the title implies, this documentary looks at the life and career of Gore Vidal, who lived from 1925 to 2012, and who, if you don't know, was a novelist, playwright, public intellectual, political commentator, and sort of social critic. Gore Vidal was kind of an old-school liberal of the best sort. And what I mean by that is, in my opinion at least, while I certainly wouldn't agree with him on everything, I think he was an honest liberal who was a liberal for the right reasons, and I think he was absolutely dead-on, correct, on all of the most important issues of his time. And by most important, I mean particularly in regards to war and empire and the police state and all that sort of stuff. He and his grandfather, from whom Vidal took his first name, are both fascinating figures in American history. Vidal's grandfather was Thomas Pryor Gore, who was a populist-leaning Democratic Party senator who represented Oklahoma for a couple of terms in the U.S. Senate in the early 20th century, during which time, by the way, he was one of only a handful of people in either House of Congress who voted against U.S. entry into World War I. So that right away makes him a decent human being in my eyes. And as a young man, Gore Vidal spent some time working as an aide for his grandfather, where part of his duties included reading documents to the senator, because Senator Gore was blind. Senator Gore, by the way, later opposed FDR's push towards participation in World War II. And for the rest of his life, until he died in 2012, his grandson, Gore Vidal, strongly agreed with his grandfather's opposition to Wilson and FDR in getting the U.S. into the two world wars. Now, Vidal, like much of his generation, did serve in the military in World War II, but I don't think he saw any actual combat. And as for wars after that, obviously, if you opposed American participation in World War II, which is supposed to be the one quote-unquote good war that no one can question, without being accused of all the worst things, being a Nazi lover, etc., If you can oppose American participation in World War II, then you're pretty much guaranteed to oppose the rest of the U.S. government's wars post-World War II. And of course, Vidal did. Gore Vidal had a way with words, both written and spoken, 
and you get a lot of his pithy little sayings in the documentary, things like this. Art is not a democracy. In fact, art is the enemy of democracy. And things like this. Elites don't need to conspire, because they all think alike anyway. In addition, he has a very pleasant and melodious voice. A fairly deep kind of baritone voice with an old-school patrician way of speaking and writing. But somehow it's of a fashion that never strikes me as being as kind of haughty and annoying and so on as someone like William F. Buckley Jr., who, by the way, was an archenemy of Vidal. Vidal led a very interesting and unique life, and among other things, he was willing in super-square mid-20th century America to question and attack and ridicule a lot of the sexual mores of the time. He didn't like to classify himself, but he apparently was gay and or possibly bisexual, back when that was a really, really dangerous and controversial thing to be. And it's not just that he was that way and that he didn't lie about it, but he also dealt with all these sorts of controversial aspects of things like gender and sexuality in a lot of his fiction. Toward the end of his life, Vidal was highly critical of both the neoconservatives and the neoliberals. To his credit, he had major issues with all of the late 20th and early 21st century presidents, going all the way back to at least JFK, whom Vidal apparently really liked as a person, but whom he strongly criticized as president for being an aggressive imperialist. And in the documentary, he seems to have had similar feelings about Obama in the last years of his life that he's a very charming and likable personality, but he's a terrible imperialist as a leader. And this sort of stuff is a big part of why I have a lot of affection for Gore Vidal, even though obviously there are plenty of places where I disagree with him on particular issues. He was, first and foremost, an anti-imperialist, who opposed the warfare state abroad and the closely connected police state at home. And if you want an example of something he wrote late in his life that gets at some of the latter, opposing the police state at home, I'll link in the show notes to an essay he published in, of all times, September 2001, in Vanity Fair, an essay entitled, The Meaning of Timothy McVeigh, in which he takes a very hard look at McVeigh's story and a bunch of surrounding events and issues including the Waco Branch Davidian story. Despite being a lifelong left-winger, Vidal definitely did not endorse the mainstream American left's take on all these events. And just in general, why I appreciate him so much as a historical figure is this very strong independent streak. I mean, his grandfather, whom he very much respected, was one of a handful who stood against America going into World War I. That is someone who's willing to stand virtually alone on principle. After 9-11, Vidal was a very outspoken critic, both of the wars that the U.S. government launched abroad and of the amping up of domestic security and surveillance state sorts of measures. Vidal was just a great anti-imperialist and civil libertarian. And he had such a way with words and such an interesting personality that I'm a huge fan, even though I admit I have not read a huge amount of his writings as of this recording. One thing that he wrote was a series of interesting American historical novels, and I've only dipped my toe into this series as of this recording. But I do plan on eventually reading all of them. 
If you want to look them up, it's a seven-book series that Vidal referred to as Narratives of Empire. So anyway, I like this documentary just because I like Gore Vidal so much and I find him such an interesting person. One of the most interesting American writers and public intellectuals of the 20th century, in my opinion. And the next documentary that I'm going to mention here also happens to center around Gore Vidal, as well as that archenemy of his that I mentioned a moment ago, the horrific William F. Buckley Jr., who, by the way, side note, is a strong contender for an eventual DHP villain spotlight in some distant, unspecified, far-off future date. If you, dear listener, keep this podcast going. And that next film that I'll recommend is Best of Enemies. Vidal versus Buckley, which is currently available on Hulu and which came out in 2015 and was directed by Robert Gordon and Morgan Neville. And by the way, I'll also mention that this film has some big names providing voiceovers reading some of Vidal and Buckley's written words and commentaries. They've got John Lithgow reading the words of Vidal and Kelsey Grammer doing Buckley. This documentary centers around what might be the single most notorious exchange of jousting pundits in American media history. An exchange that went down during the 1968 Democratic National Convention on ABC News between Vidal and Buckley. ABC News at the time was trying to get out of its distant third-place rating among the big three networks of the day. And in covering the Republican and Democratic conventions in the summer of 68, it decided that instead of doing the usual thing, instead of just covering the two conventions in a very kind of bland, straightforward sort of a way, they'd spice things up a bit by bringing on two colorful, very articulate characters who not only disagreed politically on most issues, but who also disliked each other personally as well. And that, of course, would be Gore Vidal representing the liberal side of things and Buckley representing the more conservative side. Now, William F. Buckley Jr., if you don't know, is considered one of the most, if not the most, important founders of post-World War II American conservatism, which is different from the so-called old right of the 1930s and 40s, primarily because Buckley and the other new conservatives were ultra-hawkish on foreign policy, whereas the old right was actually pretty skeptical of foreign interventionism and the military-industrial complex, and all that sort of stuff. Buckley and Vidal had interesting similarities and differences. Both of them had patrician, aristocratic mannerisms and speech, sort of stereotypical East Coast establishment ways. And both were very articulate. But in terms of their backstory, they also had some interesting differences, too. And the documentary does a pretty good job of comparing and contrasting some of this. Interestingly, both men were born in the state of New York in 1927. I think Vidal was a few months older, if memory serves. Also, if memory serves, I think Buckley was actually born in New York City, and Vidal was born elsewhere, I think West Point. Though both men had East Coast aristocratic mannerisms, Vidal's family actually went further back, much further back as sort of elites in American history than Buckley's. Buckley's family were actually much more new wealth, and relatively new to America. Buckley's father was actually an Irish Catholic immigrant to the U.S., who made big money doing business with Mexico in the early 20th century, 
His son was then raised in aristocratic style, spending much of his childhood being educated in Europe. Later, Buckley Jr. would go to Yale, where, by the way, he was inducted to Skull and Bones. And among other things, he was later in the CIA, like so many bonesmen of that time period. While Buckley was in the CIA, he worked directly for E. Howard Hunt, who later got notorious due to Watergate. And after leaving the CIA, at least officially, you often hear that the CIA is sort of like the mafia, where you don't really leave, even if you quote-unquote retire. But anyway, after leaving CIA, Buckley built up a writing career and before long went on to found National Review magazine, likely with some amount of CIA money and influence in its founding. And National Review quickly set about reworking the American right wing into something that was much, much more pro-war and much more at least tolerant to big government. Even though it would rhetorically oppose big government in practice, it was generally quite tolerant of it and sometimes actively encouraged it. By contrast, while Vidal's education growing up also included elite prep schools, his were in the United States. For example, he went to Phillips Andover Academy. But unlike Buckley, Vidal chose not to go to college and was always very proud of that choice. Both men were in the military during World War II, although I believe neither of them actually saw any combat. Obviously, both became successful writers and public intellectuals, though obviously of very different beliefs. And in the time period around 1968, they would have strongly disagreed about most of the biggest issues of the day, including racial issues, a variety of other social issues, including sexual freedoms and gender roles, etc., and many, many others. But the biggest disagreement of all was definitely the Vietnam War and everything that went along with that, which, of course, Buckley strongly supported and Vidal strongly opposed. Vidal seems to have really genuinely believed that Buckley was just a terrible and quite dangerous person who was encouraging some of the worst elements in American politics. And in these debates, he really wanted to expose what he thought were the dark undersides of Buckley's sort of polished veneer. In the first debates that coincided with the Republican convention, Vidal was much better prepared, and most people agree that he got the better of Buckley. Among other things, he called Buckley out for having advocated using nukes in Vietnam. And by the way, from very early on in their exchanges, as things started to quickly go off the rails, the super-duper square news guy, I forget the name of him, he's not as famous as Cronkite, but anyway, the super-square news guy who was the moderator of their debates, pretty quickly, you can tell, didn't know how to handle this. This was not normal for TV back then. Of people not just aggressively disagreeing with each other, much more than was the norm on mainstream TV at the time, but also from very early on starting to personally make digs at each other, too. Buckley was much better prepared for the second round of debates, but Vidal still acquitted himself very well. Buckley was still a huge proponent of the Vietnam War, as of 1968, while Vidal was strongly against it, and I think it opposed it from the very beginning. And in their exchanges, Vidal was already very critical of what he called the American Empire. He actually, there he was on mainstream network news TV. In prime time. Explicitly calling the U.S. an empire. And opposing that state of affairs. Now this is something that doesn't get talked about much, if at all, 
on major news today. I mean, at least as far as I know, I rarely, rarely ever watch the shit anymore. But certainly, when I used to still watch corporate news, just to kind of know what the establishment was saying, boy, did you not see much talk about the American empire and whether or not this was a good thing. Basically, anyone who even said such things would not be allowed on, and if they did somehow get on, they'd be quickly shattered down as just a crazy commie Nazi Muslim who knows what. And yet there you are back in 1968 on primetime network news, and you've got a very, very articulate commentator using the word empire and criticizing the fact of it. Now, of course, as you may know, if you know your 20th century American history, the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago famously saw all kinds of crazy demonstrations, primarily by radical anti-war groups, and then heavy-handed police tactics by Chicago PD, urged on by Mayor Daley. And this eventually escalated into a violent police riot against the protesters. Vidal was, of course, sympathetic with the protesters, while Buckley strongly supported the cops. Ultimately, the climactic moment, plot spoiler, comes when Buckley compared the demonstrators to Nazis. And Vidal responded by saying something like, As far as I'm concerned, the only crypto-Nazi is yourself. Whereupon Buckley completely lost his shit and said, and I quote, Now listen, you queer. Stop calling me a crypto-Nazi or I'll sock you in the goddamn face, and you'll stay plastered. End quote. Now again, on network corporate primetime news, in 1968, someone saying that. And in the moment, while Buckley is losing it and saying that, Vidal looks into the camera that was on him, basically breaks the fourth wall, and smiles at the viewers. He knew he had won by successfully baiting Buckley into losing his cool and coming off as a crazy asshole. And according to people who were in the studio at the time, after the fact, Buckley was dejected and he knew that he had blown it. He knew he fucked up. In the aftermath of these debates, the war of words between the two men continued, as both of them wrote negative things about the other in various publications. Among other things, Vidal wrote some stuff that not so subtly implied that Buckley's homophobia might actually be a cover or overcompensation for Buckley's own repressed homosexual tendencies. Then they ended up suing each other over this stuff that they printed about each other, and it ended kind of inconclusively. There's quite a lot of evidence that Buckley remained very bothered by this whole thing for the rest of his life. The documentary ends by having some modern-day commentators lament that this exchange sort of began the whole point-counterpoint format of two commentators aggressively arguing with each other on TV. Now, I would argue that this format, wherein, for example, you'll have a Republican Party hack and a Democratic Party hack talking past each other as each kind of just recites their talking points. That this whole format just tends to kind of reify and reinforce the Manichaean temptation in American politics by assuming and acting as if there are two and only two potential points of view on anything. This then creates that very narrow realm of allowable opinion in the minds of the viewers. It shrinks what you're allowed to say and think and discuss by saying, well, you have these two options, you have to pick one. You've got to line up behind either this 
Democratic Party hack or Republican Party hack. Pick one. You have free choice. Now, before moving on to the next film, we'll say one takeaway I gleaned from watching this is that for all of its flaws, in many ways, American news television of 52 years ago was at a much higher intellectual level than today. Because even though you could argue that the Buckley Vidal sparring matches began the trend of having two partisan talking heads attacking each other that, you know, eventually turns into shit like Bill O'Reilly and all that sort of stuff. In the beginning, if you look at when it was actually Buckley and Vidal, yes, they were trading some personal insults for sure. But the level of exchange was much higher intellectually and linguistically. Whatever else you want to say about Buckley and Vidal, it actually was two intelligent, educated, very articulate people who just in terms of those qualities were on a much higher level than you'll ever see today on corporate news in the point-counterpoint format. I mean, I absolutely despise William F. Buckley Jr., but I'll give him his due and say that he was very articulate and certainly no dummy. And if you watch those episodes of his show Firing Line, I mean, he's at a very high intellectual level, even though I think he's evil and wrong. But it's a much higher intellectual level than you'll find today in the mainstream corporate news. The next film I want to recommend is Detropia, which currently can be found on YouTube, although the version up there is with Spanish subtitles, but of course you can just ignore those. And Detropia came out in 2012 and was directed by Heidi Ewing and Rachel Grady. Detropia is about a lot of the problems in Detroit having to do with the city's decline that have been going on for 40-plus years at this point. And I have to say that to me, the decline of the American Rust Belt is, in my mind, one of the most interesting trends in American social and economic history in the last 50 years or so, along with another major socioeconomic trend, which is the rise of the so-called Sun Belt since World War II. Basically, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, say, from the mid-40s through the mid-60s, the Rust Belt was in many ways at its peak in terms of prosperity and productivity and seemingly thriving cities and lots of good jobs. But by the late 60s, the region had started a long decline that has continued up to the present. Meanwhile, beginning in the aftermath of World War II, the so-called Sun Belt began to boom. And the Sun Belt is basically the southern rim region of the United States that goes from Florida and Georgia in the east, westward all the way to Southern California. And of course, the parts of it that grew the most population-wise since World War II are Florida, Texas, and Southern California, and to a lesser extent, some other areas like Arizona, which also grew tremendously in population, but not quite as dramatically as Florida, Texas, and California. And as the Sun Belt began to boom in population growth and economic growth and so on, that boom in some ways sped up with the decline of the Rust Belt. And at least to some extent, the two things were related. Because while certainly not everybody moving into the Sun Belt since World War II was coming from the Rust Belt, they were coming from all over the place, including from other parts of the U.S., as well as from other countries. But nonetheless, at least some of the people coming into the Sun Belt post-World War II were coming from areas of the Rust Belt that had already started to decline. They were voting with their feet, 
going to places that seem to be offering more opportunity. So these two partially overlapping trends, the decline of the Rust Belt and the rise of the Sun Belt, seem to me to be sort of two sides of the post-war American social history coin. And I do have vague notions and aspirations about possibly in some far-off day in the future doing a DHP series on these two big demographic and economic stories. But anyway, getting back to this documentary, this documentary doesn't really get into the rise of the Sun Belt. It's all really just about the city of Detroit itself, which is often considered the sort of archetype and ground zero for Rust Belt decline. The place that during the Rust Belt's heyday was the best and the place that has fallen the most dramatically by many measures of population and wealth and all kinds of social indicators. So the people who made this movie lived in the city for a year and talked to all sorts of people in Detroit about their perception of the city and the trends and the problems it faces. You go from poor African Americans to wealthy white folks at the Detroit Opera House, which is largely funded by the big car companies, and many, many sorts of people in between those two extremes. The film is presented with no real voiceover or narration, just clips of the residents themselves talking about things. So you get a variety of residents' perspectives on these problems, things like jobs disappearing, factories closing, unemployment, vacant homes, crime, and demographic decline. Detroit, by the way, has lost more than half its population over the last 50 years. Just as an aside, my own stepfather, with whom I'm pretty close, is from Detroit originally. And he grew up there in the post-war period when it was still a pretty nice place to live. But he left in the mid-1960s to go to college in the South, and eventually ended up in Florida by, I think, about the early 1970s. So his life actually tracks that trend of the Rust Belt declining and the Sun Belt booming pretty perfectly. And growing up several times in the 1990s, we went on family road trips up to Detroit to spend time with his relatives, most of whom at that time, you know, 25 years ago, still lived in the Detroit area. And they're a big Polish-American family that had all lived in Detroit for several generations since the very early 20th century. And by the way, they're some of the nicest people I know. They always made me feel very welcome and very much part of the family. And just as an aside within an aside, I'll say the same thing about the folks I interact with when I go, for example, to the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. Super duper nice people. And just in general, you know, the South has the reputation for being very friendly and hospitable and all this sort of stuff. And it's true in some areas and not so true in others. I've met very nice people in the South. I've lived my whole life in various parts of the South. But I think people from the Midwest, particularly from those Great Lakes states like Michigan and Wisconsin and places like that, I think they might actually give Southerners a run for their money on being friendly. And in some way, their friendliness up in the Midwest seems more, I don't know, just genuine and honest and without pretense. Whereas, at least among some Southerners, the friendliness and hospitality sometimes feels a little phony, feels a little bit like, a veneer, sometimes even passive aggressiveness. You know, the whole kind of bless their heart kind of thing. But anyway, that's just a just a little aside on my own experiences and observations. But if there was any objective way to measure the average friendliness of people from different regions of the United States, 
I wouldn't be surprised if Midwesterners might not even edge out the South. But anyway, before getting back to the documentary, I'll just note that as of this recording, most of those relatives of my stepfather no longer live in Michigan anymore. Most of them no longer even live in the Great Lakes region. So again, the story tracks the big picture of the decline of the Rust Belt. Anyway, back to the film, you see people just giving their perspectives, and so you see things like labor unions fighting to try to keep pay up for their workers, but all the while, if anything, they're probably just speeding up the job exodus. Because they're making it more expensive for those factories to stay open and to keep employing those workers. And so they're in kind of a catch-22. And you see others, including politicians and other leaders and business owners, trying or advocating various things to deal with the city's problems that are ineffective at best and sometimes counterproductive. You see the city government struggling to come up with some sort of central plan to reverse the decline. And all I can say is, yeah, good luck with that whole central planning thing. It never quite works out. And just to give you an example, one of the things they play with in the documentary, the city leaders, is a program to try to relocate people physically from the less densely populated parts of the city, and it is a geographically very dispersed city, to the more densely populated parts of the city. But of course, the residents themselves who are in the less dense places don't want to be forcibly relocated to a different part of town. So, of course, the plan is unlikely to go anywhere. And many of the people in the documentary, and I would agree with this, are skeptical that it would really make that big of an improvement, even if you could get most people to go along with this whole scheme. This film, as well as other documentaries and books I'm familiar with about declining Rust Belt cities, are interesting companions to the excellent HBO series from a while back that I always recommend, The Wire. Now, The Wire is about Baltimore, which obviously is not the same thing as Detroit, and it isn't quite exactly a Rust Belt city geographically. But some people have made the case that in terms of its experience and its economic decline and the problems it faces, you know, the fact that a place like Baltimore shares most of the exact same sorts of problems facing a place like Detroit for the last 50 or so years means that a show like The Wire that is a very realistically based portrayal of policing and crime and politics and all these sorts of issues in Baltimore uh, makes it a very interesting tie-in to give additional perspectives on these sorts of problems in these sorts of cities and how often all these well-intended efforts to fix things and turn things around and whatever create all these perverse, unforeseen side effects and perverse incentives and at best they don't really do much to help the problem and at worst some of them make things worse. Now, while I find this film very interesting and I do like it, I will admit that Detropia is a little bit slow, and it might be one that's best to watch in pieces unless you've got a very long attention span. But the next documentary I'm going to mention, which also centers on Detroit and some of its problems and its decline, but that's a lot more lively in style and content, is the film Burn. Burn is about the firefighters of Detroit, and it's currently available on Hulu. It came out in 2012 and is directed by Tom Putnam and Brenna Sanchez. Burn is a documentary, like I said, about Detroit firefighters. It's very dramatic in style, and it's action-packed for a documentary, complete with a hard rock and sort of a soundtrack, and it's shot and edited in a much more technical filmmaking style 
So it's quite a contrast to Detropia, which is much more kind of flat in its presentation. It's just like, look, here's what these people have to say. Now, on top of all of Detroit's other problems that I've already mentioned and alluded to, they have huge amounts of buildings burned, and a high percentage of them are arson. And part of this is because there's just so many abandoned buildings, both homes and other things throughout the city. One firefighter in the film says he thinks 95% of all the fires in Detroit are actually arson, motivated by various things. And of course, the Detroit Fire Department is dealing with this insane amount of arson, with very, very limited resources in terms of budgets and equipment. And of course, that's a situation that's caused by all of the city's other economic and demographic issues. In the film, they talk to a variety of different firefighters, some of whom are longtime veterans, others of whom are younger and newer. And they even talk to one guy who's a fairly young guy who was paralyzed by a building collapse in a fire that he was fighting. And the guy's story is just totally heartbreaking. Now, some of these guys are happy warriors who seem to really love their job and even relish the danger. And others, you can just tell, are suffering from poor morale. Which is understandable, caused by the low pay, the lack of resources, the ridiculous amount of danger, and so on. Most of these firefighters, the film reveals, actually have second jobs. And many do construction, although... At least one guy they show in the film is cutting hair at a barbershop when he's not, you know, on the job as a firefighter. These guys' equipment, including their fire trucks, are just falling apart, and often they have to go fight fires without having the right equipment. Now, being overstretched and having a lot of low morale in general, the DFD is then prone, as the film shows, to sometimes making dumb mistakes. Like, one thing they show in the film is someone parks a fire truck, which it costs, I think, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They park this fire truck on some train tracks when they're going to fight a fire, and then a train hits it and the truck gets totaled. Now, it didn't sound like any person was killed or injured in this, but, you know, they stupidly wrecked a fire truck. They don't have the money to buy a new one. They can barely keep the ones they already have running. Now, over the course of the film, a new fire commissioner is brought in, who used to be the fire commissioner for L.A., and who was originally born in Detroit, and you kind of see the difficulty this guy has in trying to come in and, you know, sort of be Napoleon and turn the situation around and all that, you really see the classic difficulties of an outsider being brought in and trying to reform a pretty dysfunctional organization that is suffering from low morale. And that low morale, by the way, as I said before, isn't entirely unreasonable given the situation that these guys are in. Eventually, this fire commissioner decides to let some of the vacant buildings that, you know, are on fire just go ahead and burn themselves out if there aren't any other buildings nearby. And the whole idea is this is an effort to save money and to minimize the deaths and injuries of firemen, which makes sense. But initially, many of the firemen already on the force resist this, in part because they argue that many of these allegedly vacant buildings actually will have squatters in them. And in part, it just kind of seems to go against all their instincts and training to just want to instinctively go all out fighting any fire anywhere. The film ends on an ambiguous, though somewhat optimistic note, with this new fire commissioner finally starting to get some cred within the DFD, and starting to sort of get the rank and file on board with his sometimes-just-let-em-burn sort of strategy. The film does do some glorification of public employee unions in general, and I will say that among public employees, I have much more sympathy for firefighters and EMTs 
than I do for cops and at least some other types of public employees. Because most of what firefighters and EMTs are doing is good stuff where they are actually trying to help people, even though, obviously, as an anarchist, I think it shouldn't be created and funded by coercion and all that, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, within the statist paradigm, I'm not going to call someone who legitimately risks his life just to save another person who's in a burning building a bad guy, even if he is ultimately paid by taxation. Because I understand that's just the mechanism we have currently for these services in our current paradigm. And so I'm still willing to say that, you know, someone who charges into a burning building to save somebody's life is pretty heroic, even to someone like me who's an anarchist. Just like to take a little bit less dramatic example, I'm not going to call an engineer who builds roads and bridges evil just because he's ultimately paid by the state. It's like, well, where we are now, that's who builds most of the roads and bridges. But anyway, regardless of their own beliefs about the best way to solve the problems of the city of Detroit and its fire department, most of these firefighters seem like genuinely good, salt-of-the-earth, blue-collar guys, and it's hard not to sympathize with them on sort of a human level, whatever you might think about some of their, you know, ideas on how things should be and how things should be fixed in Detroit or whatever. And like I said, if nothing else, it's a, it's a very entertaining, dramatic, well-done documentary. It's fast-paced and very interesting. Now, the next one on my list, looks like we're at number 18, again, not that the numbers really mean anything, is the documentary Soaked in Bleach, which is currently available on Amazon Prime at no additional charge if you already are a Prime member. This film came out in 2015 and was directed by Benjamin Statler. Soaked in Bleach looks into the death of Nirvana's Kurt Cobain that took place in 1994. And the way the story is told here is primarily centering around a private investigator named Tom Grant, who was hired by Cobain's wife, Courtney Love, to try to find him, as apparently he had gone missing for several days before his death. This film mixes documentary interviews with dramatic reenactments of certain scenes and conversations. According to the film, Tom Grant is a former cop with a very positive record on the job who then became a P.I., but who always stayed very honest and conscientious and was just unwilling to ever manipulate the truth, even if the truth would go against the wishes or interests of whoever had hired him. Grant's story is that, according to him, from very early on, a lot of the things Courtney Love said and did just didn't add up and were deceptive and suspicious in various ways and that after Kurt was ultimately found dead, Tom Grant became more and more suspicious of Courtney Love. Furthermore to that, Grant, as well as the filmmakers, point out various aspects of how the Seattle Police Department handled the investigation into Cobain's death that are, at the very least, unusual, and give the appearance of, at a minimum, some amount of negligence and incompetence, if not something even more nefarious than that, and they even have a former Seattle police chief that they talk to who actually agrees with that assessment that this investigation stinks. So the film raises enough strange things related to Cobain's death and the investigation of it that at least make me go, hmm. That said, the one thing about this film that I couldn't quite go along with was the degree to which they try to claim that not only was Cobain, according to them, not suicidal, but that he might not have even been depressed 
were otherwise suffering mentally at the point when he was, you know, kind of his last days or weeks or whatever before his death. And I just couldn't buy it as far as they were wanting me to go on that because, okay, possibly he wasn't actually suicidal. What do I know? I didn't know the guy and I'm not qualified to make that call anyway. But just looking at the totality of his life and his music and his substance problems and so on, it seems pretty clear that whether he actually did kill himself or not, the guy definitely had some very serious issues. Now, the fact that he had serious issues doesn't prove that he killed himself. Perhaps something else happened. But I think they in the film kind of overdo it on trying to be revisionist on the belief that everyone has that Cobain had some serious psychological baggage. I don't think there's any way you could look at his life and his work and everything and not go, yeah, this guy had some issues. Anyway, though I've been a fan of Nirvana's music since I was a kid in the 90s, I am not an expert on this particular case. I've not, you know, read a bunch of books and articles on it and watched a bunch of other films on it, so I'm not taking a strong stance on this whole thing one way or the other. Did Cobain really kill himself, or was he murdered, and was Courtney Love involved in it in some way? I don't know. And unlike a lot of people, I don't take a strong stance on something when I'm not sure about it. I don't like to pretend I know stuff I don't know. Right, I try to resist the Dunning-Kruger temptation to take a strong opinion on things that I actually am ignorant of. And to be honest, I don't really have any intention to ever dig deeply into this, even though I'm a Nirvana fan. I've got so many other things I want to dig into that I doubt I would ever have the time and inclination to dive into this one, enough to ever have an educated opinion about it. That said, I will say that the documentary, if nothing else, does contain enough information to certainly cause me to raise an eyebrow about the whole thing. There are enough things about Courtney Love and what she said and did, and enough things that are fishy about the way the Seattle Police Department handled the investigation, for me to at least be willing to say that there's the possibility that Kurt Cobain's death wasn't exactly what we've all been told. And I'll just leave it at that. One more thing I'll say about this film is that I do find it very intriguing and interesting. It held my attention and made me think, if nothing else. And certainly, whether Courtney Love actually was the Carol Baskin of this story or not, or if Carol Baskin even was the Carol Baskin of her story or not, I will say about Courtney Love, I've never liked her. I've never trusted her. Now, obviously, I don't know her personally, so I'm just, you know, basing this on her public persona and all that, but I've never liked her. I've never trusted her. I've always thought she was much less talented than Kurt Cobain and was trying to sort of ride his fame for her own career. And that even if Courtney Love actually did have nothing to do with Cobain's death, I don't think she was a good thing for him or ever had his best interests in mind. And at the very least, even if he did actually commit suicide, her influence and their relationship was probably a contributing factor from everything that I've seen on this whole story. All right, my next documentary is one I know I've mentioned on the DHP before, though perhaps not for a while, and that is the documentary I Am Fishhead, which is currently available on YouTube and which came out in 2011. It was directed by, and forgive my pronunciation, Vaslav Dekshmar and Misha Votruba. Now, I'm pretty sure those are Czech names, so, any listeners fluent in Czech, please forgive my pronunciation. This film, by the way, does have a few brief segments speaking with Czech President 
and anti-communist hero Václav Havel. This film is narrated by the great Peter Coyote, who is one of my two favorite voiceover actors for narrating nonfiction film. The other one is the great Keith David, who maybe edges Peter Coyote out in my opinion, but it's very, very close. I'd certainly be happy with either of them narrating a documentary film if I ever made such a thing. I think I mentioned this film back in my 21 Key Concepts and Theories series way, way back in regard to the concepts of psychopathy and sociopathy, and that's what this film is focused on. Understanding psychopaths and how psychopathic behavior affects our society and our institutions, with a lot of focus on what some of the commentators in the film call corporate psychopaths. By which they mean psychopaths who are not personally physically violent, and who are adept at climbing to the top of organizations and institutions. Now, a lot of the film focuses on psychopaths within the corporate business world. And they attribute some of the 2008 financial crash to psychopathic behavior at the top of major financial institutions. And I don't disagree that that may have been going on. I think that's fair enough as it goes. Although, as someone who is a proponent of Austrian business cycle theory, I do think that psychology alone is inadequate as an ultimate factor to explain economic boom and bust cycles. But I'm not opposed to the theory that psychopaths are probably disproportionately represented among the world's biggest banksters. I don't think there's anything crazy about that at all. The film does make some references to psychopaths rising in politics, but I really wish they'd done more with that part of things. And this is my main criticism of this film. I really wish they'd explored that angle more. And when they do talk about it, they flash pictures of famous dictators, which is fine. I'm sure those guys are psychopaths and sociopaths. But what about the possibility, which I think is actually quite likely, that even among so-called democratically elected presidents and prime ministers, there might not be a disproportionate number of psychopaths to be found? I'm pretty sure, if you could ever test this, that there have been multiple presidents of the United States just in my lifetime, who've been either psychopaths or sociopaths. I mean, if you just list the personality characteristics of an archetypical psychopath, and then do the same for an archetypical master politician, you'll see there is almost total overlap. Things like being charismatic and charming and being able to give the appearance of caring and empathy, but in reality, being cold-blooded, ruthless, calculating, manipulative, and being willing to do whatever it takes to get what you want, all those sorts of things. But setting that criticism aside, that it doesn't go far enough in exploring the political angle, I do think the film does a good job in concisely explaining what a psychopath really is, because a lot of people's perceptions of what that term means are way off. And the film also is good at explaining how good some of them can be at playing the game of climbing up the hierarchy of institutions and organizations, and of conning and charming and taking advantage of non-psychopaths, which are most people. By the way, just as an aside, I think this is something Jordan Peterson actually gets wrong. He really downplays the degree to which psychopaths might work their way up institutions. 
I think he's basing his opinion on that because it's not his area of expertise as a psychologist. And of course, I'm not a psychologist at all, so who am I to criticize? But I'll do it anyway. I think Peterson's perspective on the ability or lack thereof for psychopaths to rise up institutions, both in the public and private sector, is based on decades-old, outdated information on psychopaths. Because I think things that have come out in the past few decades really show that there are more of them than we think, and that it's just that the ones, these corporate psychopaths who are very good at rising up institutions of power and all that, they're the ones who are the most effective at camouflaging who they really are and what they're really doing and why. But anyway, back to the documentary. A bunch of top psychologists are commentators in this film, including some who had conducted a real-world empirical study in which they found that psychopaths often tend to get promoted inside corporations, despite their often having objectively poor job performances, simply because they're so good at skillfully and ruthlessly playing the political game within the company. Again, this contradicts Jordan Peterson's claim that psychopaths rarely are successful anywhere and they often get found out very quickly. Absolutely not. Psychopaths are often very good at disguising the fact that they're psychopaths. Now, again, I wish in this film they had done more to explicitly raise the implications of this finding regarding those who might be doing the same thing within the political structure, but it is what it is. Nobody's perfect except anarchists, I guess. The film also makes an interesting argument that some psychotropic drugs, particularly SSRIs, can cause people who are not really psychopaths to start exhibiting psychopathic tendencies by suppressing their normal emotional responses and thus reducing their empathy and increasing their willingness to do things like engaging in risky behavior and other sorts of things that are normally associated with psychopaths. One of the psychologists they have on as a commentator in this film is actually Philip Zimbardo of Stanford Prison Experiment fame. And Zimbardo brings up the Milgram experiment to illustrate how ordinary people's tendency to kind of mindlessly obey authority enables psychopaths, and how, in some variations of that experiment, they showed that if someone else did the right thing and stood up to authority, other people who witnessed it were more likely to stand up and do the right thing themselves, too. And it's here that Václav Havel's standing up against communism in Czechoslovakia, starting off as almost a lone dissident voice, but eventually helping to bring about the collapse of communism in that country, is cited as a real-world example of this sort of thing. Zimbardo's comments in the film are some of the most insightful of all of them, and I think the film is worth watching just for that. He really has a pretty sophisticated understanding of evil and psychopathy. The film actually ends on a potentially optimistic note, with Havel and Zimbardo both in kind of different ways, pointing to the argument that doing the right thing can be contagious, just like doing the wrong thing can be as well. And that instead of just obeying those at the top of the social pyramid, all of us down in the cheap seats at the bottom should focus on helping each other and doing the right thing. And this is definitely good advice for our current times, I think, and possibly for all times. The next film I want to mention is quite different, and 
is one of the more lighthearted ones in some ways in this dozen. And that is the film Atari Game Over, which is currently available on Amazon Prime. This film came out in 2014 and was directed by Zach Penn, who, by the way, is a very interesting guy who's done work in the film industry, including being one of the co-writers of The Avengers, and who's also done some work in the video game industry, too. This film gives a very brief history of the rise and fall of Atari, which was the first really popular home video game system that featured multiple games. And if you don't know, its heyday was from the late 70s into the early 80s. And then Atari ultimately went under following the so-called 1983 crash of the home video game market. Now, Zach Penn frames this story with a very interesting thing that happened in 2013. There was a long-standing story in kind of video game history and mythology that the main reason that Atari went down in 83, and for a while much of the industry went down with it, was one game for Atari. E.T. Obviously based on the very successful movie. The E.T. game for Atari was released for Christmas in 1982. And the story is that this one game was so bad and unsuccessful, and that it was expected to do so well that they had made so many copies of it, sunk so much money and resources into it, that when it flunked in terms of sales, it tanked the whole company. And this particular game is frequently listed as the worst, or at least one of the worst video games of all time. Well, anyway, there's this story that as Atari was going down in 83, they dumped an enormous surplus number of E.T. cartridges in a landfill in the desert outside Alamogordo, New Mexico. There was some newspaper evidence of this event from the time, but nonetheless, the story sort of had the air of an urban legend. Zach Penn teamed up with an expert on that landfill, along with an archaeologist, to try to figure out where in the massive landfill the cartridges could have been, and then to try and excavate them to verify the story. They turned the whole thing into an event, with large numbers of famous and not-so-famous fans of old video games turning out for it. Including, by the way, Ernest Klein, who is the author of Ready Player One, who actually drove to the event in his DeLorean, complete with a life-sized E.T. figure in the passenger seat. You gotta love that. The rest of the story of the actual excavation, and how it turns out, is really quite interesting. Plot spoiler, they are able to approximate the location of the games from photos in an old newspaper article, and they do eventually find their first E.T. game after digging over 20 feet down. And then they find a bunch more Atari games. Ultimately, I think they said only about 10% of the Atari games that they excavated were E.T.'s. The rest were other games. But they ultimately did confirm that a huge number of excess Atari games were sent to that landfill. Now, along the way, the documentary also does a pretty good job of giving a brief history of Atari and the very, very interesting characters who were its main engineers and designers, with a lot of focus on a guy named Howard Scott Warshaw, who, after designing several very successful games for Atari, was then given the job of creating a video game for the E.T. movie. However, he had to do it in just over a month, which was only a small fraction of the time that these guys usually use to put together a video game. 
Warshaw managed to get the game done in that amount of time, but the game was very disappointing and a lot of people hated it. The critics said it was way too hard and not all that fun, though some of the commentators in the film try to be contrarian or revisionist and say that the game wasn't as bad as everyone claims it to be, etc. For what it's worth, in the mid-80s, my older stepbrother still had an Atari. So, this would have been probably shortly before the Nintendo NES really hit the U.S. market. And we played his Atari a lot, and I remember playing E.T. on it. Now, I honestly can't remember if he owned E.T. or if we rented it, but I definitely remember playing E.T. And I can remember being bored and confused and frustrated by it and not liking it very much. So for what that's worth me at like age five, I played it and I was like, this sucks. Now, as the movie argues, and I think this is true, it's unfair and inaccurate to say that E.T.'s flop is the sole cause of Atari's fall and the video game crash of 83. I don't think it's that simple, but certainly that video game's disappointing sales must have at least been somewhat of a factor, and it certainly is kind of emblematic of it for sure. So if you're an 80s nostalgia geek and or an old school video gamer, or if like me, you're kind of both, you'll appreciate this film very much. And here I'll just give an honorable mention to another documentary film that deals with Atari history. And that is Easy to Learn, Hard to Master, The Fate of Atari, which is also currently available on Prime. Easy to Learn, Hard to Master is a much longer documentary that goes into much more detail on the rise and fall of Atari. I enjoyed it as well, and think that anyone interested in video games and their history will too. But I will say, it's a much longer film, and it's not, I don't know, as snappy with the storytelling concision. And it's just not as well done from a technical standpoint, including, by the way, a voiceover narrator who almost sounds like someone who's doing an impression of Ben Stein and Ferris Bueller. So, it's not as entertaining or well-made technically as Atari Game Over. But if you're intrigued by Atari Game Over, and you want much more detail on the very interesting characters and story of Atari, including a lot more on its founder, a guy named Nolan Bushnell, who's very, very interesting then Easy to Learn, Hard to Master is worth checking out as well. Alright, so now that we've done a more lighthearted kind of one, back to hard-hitting stuff that kind of lines up more with the types of themes and stories that we often cover on the DHP. So the next film I want to recommend is 1971, which is currently available to watch on YouTube. This film came out in 2014 and was directed by Johanna Hamilton. So on March 8th, 1971, eight activists who were calling themselves the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI stole over a thousand secret documents from an FBI office in Pennsylvania. They then shared these files with the press, most of whom acted like tame little bitches and published nothing related to them and in fact returned the documents to the FBI. Only the Washington Post published and exposed the information, which included a bunch of hard evidence on all of the illegal operations and surveillance that the FBI were doing during that time period against anti-war groups, black activist groups, and various other sort of left-wing and radical groups. Included in these documents 
was one that exposed the term COINTELPRO to the public for the first time. And this, of course, was the FBI's code name for these types of operations. This group of activists who pulled this thing off, and whose identities I believe were revealed for the very first time in this film, had gone from being involved in demonstrations to more direct action, non-violently trying to disrupt the worst aspects of the U.S. government's activities. They were initially involved in trying to disrupt draft board activities. They would sneak or break into draft offices and take a bunch of the cards and destroy them. This is, of course, when everything was still done with actual paper. So if you could break into a draft office and destroy a bunch of its draft cards, you might actually get a whole bunch of guys off the hook, at least for the time being, from being sent to Vietnam. So these are heroes, in my opinion. They then started to get more concerned with law enforcement's efforts to disrupt all radical activist groups of the time. They began to realize that it wasn't just the obvious things, like cops initiating violence against peaceful protesters, but that there was much more nefarious kind of infiltration and informer and disruptive type stuff, as well as all kinds of shady surveillance that was taking place. Basically the stuff that we later know as COINTELPRO. Now, obviously, this stuff was having a huge effect in terms of suppressing dissent by making it harder for people to organize and carry out various types of action. So this small group who trusted each other and were able to be pretty confident that none of them would snitch figured out that there was a rather small FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, that had very minimal security and they pulled off this heist. The story of just how they did it is pretty incredible and ingenious, and I won't ruin it by giving you details about it here. But long story short, they were successful. They absolutely proved that the FBI was engaged in thought policing, and that they were using all sorts of shady and illegal and unconstitutional secret methods to do this. This is a very entertaining documentary that takes on some of the worst aspects of the FBI's history. And it is a wonderful case of nonviolent guerrilla warfare being carried out successfully. No, it ultimately did not lead to a revolution, or even to abolition of the FBI. But at least it exposed to the public for the first time, beyond the shadow of a doubt, the really nefarious shit that the FBI was up to. And for all of these reasons, I can highly recommend this film, both as history and as a very fascinating, entertaining, and inspiring story. My next documentary is a feature-length episode of PBS's American Experience entitled The Eugenics Crusade, which is currently available on Amazon Prime. This is very recent, only came out in 2018, and was directed by Michelle Ferrari. And as the title indicates, this film is about the origins and heyday of eugenics in early 20th century America. It starts off with Charles Benedict Davenport, who, under the influence of people like Sir Francis Galton, brought a lot of the basic ideas behind eugenics from Europe to America. In 1910, Davenport began the Eugenics Record Office, which was in many ways, the centerpiece of the eugenics movement in the U.S. 
By the way, Davenport got funding and support from many elite American foundations and individuals and families, including the Carnegie Foundation and the widow of E.H. Harriman, among others. The documentary also spends a lot of coverage on a guy named Harry Laughlin, who was director of the ERO for its entire 29-year existence, from 1910 to 1939. The basic belief of the ERO and the eugenics movement was that the root of virtually all social problems could be traced back to what they called feeble-mindedness, which they believed was pretty much 100% based on heredity. And based on this belief, the eugenicists supported very strict immigration restrictions, as well as government interventions, including institutionalization and forced sterilization, in order to prevent the people who were feeble-minded who were already inside the U.S. from being able to reproduce. And as the documentary, to its credit, does point out, most of the biggest supporters of eugenics in early 20th century America were in fact progressives which is no surprise and makes perfect sense if you're familiar at all with Progressivism 1.0. After all, progressives believe that state power can and should be used to fix all social problems, and they believe that there really shouldn't be any limits other than sort of practicality on the state's powers, and that the state should be run by technocratic scientific quote-unquote experts. So, of course, given all those beliefs, progressives would be extremely amenable to the idea of having the state regulate and intervene in human reproduction in various ways in order to, quote-unquote, improve the nation. Of course, in practice, much of the classification of some people as defective and feeble-minded was a mixture of class and race prejudice. Eugenic supporters like progressives in general during this time period were mostly upper-middle and upper-class wasps, and they tended to be disproportionately likely to rate people of color as well as kind of Southern and Eastern Europeans as feeble-minded, and less likely to classify other white Anglo-Saxon Protestants as defective, other than perhaps in the case of some of the most impoverished backwoods hillbilly types. Now, everything these eugenicists said and did was given the air of absolute scientific authority and certainty at the time. And to me, this is a classic case of scientism and worshipping of and deferring to so-called scientific experts going way off the rails. Most of the quote-unquote scientific truths of the eugenicists have since been debunked and these days are treated as basically quack pseudoscience in the same realm as something like phrenology. But at the time, these ideas were very influential in academia and radiated out from there into the political system. The eugenicists also, by the way, were very big on quantifying everything, and this obsession with quantifying data and the belief that this then gives you certainty and objectivity about everything is another problem aside from just sort of scientism and deference to authority and titles in general, that's never really gone away. And I've personally observed the bad effects, for example, of obsessing over numerical data from behind the scenes in education. And it's in virtually anything else that's a large institution or organization as well. Basically, the obsession on quantifiable data leads to all kinds of warped incentives, 
and gaming of the system and juking of the stats, not to actually improving anything that could seriously be called the student's experience or learning or anything like that. So anyway, by the eve of World War I, eugenicists were zeroing in on IQ testing as possibly the most important tool in order to separate the genetic wheat from the chaff, so to speak. And they managed to test a large percentage of U.S. military recruits who were inducted during World War I, ultimately testing around 1.7 million men. The actual tests they were giving at the time, by the way, were not always just or even primarily measuring real raw intelligence or aptitude or the ability of people to learn things or anything like that. Instead, what these tests as they existed back then were often really checking was the degree to which the test subject was familiar or not with kind of middle and upper class norms and culture. Based on these IQ tests, roughly half of the 1.7 million men they tested in the U.S. military ranks were officially, scientifically, classified as quote-unquote morons. The documentary then goes on to show how many eugenicist ideas were actually starting to get debunked by some legit scientists who were studying genetics in the 1920s and 30s, and that basically these researchers were starting to realize that genetics and heredity were just way more complicated than the simplistic view of it that the eugenists held to, and that environment also had a very big effect too on outcomes. However, there was a lag time between when the scientists started to move away from eugenics and when the general public and politicians did. And eugenics maintained a big influence on policy long after many serious scientists were rejecting the concept. And to some extent, this reminds me a little bit of the war on drugs, which the people, the medical and scientific experts who study things like drug addiction and the effects of different drugs and possible therapeutic uses of certain drugs that are currently illegal, right, like psychedelics or what have you, most of these actual experts on this stuff are against the current war on drugs paradigm. But with the exception of the states that have started to legalize things like marijuana, for the most part, the policy debate and the policy practices are, at the very least, a generation, if not more, behind where the serious science of things like addiction and the effects of different drugs is. So it's amazing how often public discussion and politics can lag behind the best available information. I mean, I guess it's not really that amazing once you see it enough times for what it is. But still, it's annoying to anyone who tries to really understand the facts about something as best they can. How often the public discussion and the political approach to a given topic will lag decades behind the best available information. Anyway, the documentary then goes on to cover the eugenicist motivations behind the very strict Immigration Act of 1924, and the continuing eugenicists' kind of lingering influence long after that, both in the U.S. as well as abroad. Like, perhaps most notoriously, many of the Nazis' early racial policies were actually inspired by and modeled upon the eugenics practices that already existed in the U.S. at the time. Now, of course, 
the Nazis took things many steps further than American eugenicists ever were able to, or really even seem to have seriously contemplated. I'm not aware of any leading American eugenicists actually advocating rounding up certain people into death camps or something like that. But, you know, they did advocate things like forced sterilization and institutionalization, so you can see how it's just a few more steps down that path until you're just advocating wiping out certain people. Now, by the mid to late 1930s, the overt influence of eugenics began to fade, but of course, many of their programs and policies regarding things like immigration, institutionalization, and even sterilization lingered in at least some U.S. states for decades. Obviously, the idea of eugenics, though often in more camouflaged forms, continues to have influence on some of the world's most elite people, both in the U.S. and globally. And some of the more simplistic, kind of crude parts of early 20th century eugenicists, like their absolute obsession with race and IQ, continue to animate some of the more extreme elements of today's alt-right. So this is a very relevant topic. Now, this film doesn't cover every aspect of early 20th century eugenics, for sure. But I have to say, for a film that's a little bit under two hours, that was done by a rather mainstream outlet, PBS, I was actually pretty favorably impressed by just how much dangerous history was in this film. Just to give you one little example, they do mention then-ex-president Teddy Roosevelt writing a very supportive, positive letter to the Eugenics Record Office in 1913. That's just not the kind of stuff that you're likely to find in most mainstream history coverage of this time period. So, this is a part of American history that most of the mainstream is largely clueless about, and it's good to see some serious, in-depth coverage of it in such a mainstream venue. So I think it's a film definitely worth checking out. Film number 23, and thus the second-to-last one for this episode, is The Fog of War, which can currently be found free to watch on YouTube, although the version on YouTube has some weird special effects background kind of star things in parts. I don't know how else to describe it. And all I can figure is that maybe that's a way to try and avoid any copyright issues of posting it free on YouTube. I don't know, but you can just sort of ignore that stuff when it happens. I think if you've got HBO, I think this was originally done or released through HBO. So if you have HBO of some sort, you may be able to access it through that as well. I don't currently have HBO, so I'm not sure. Anyway, this documentary was made back in 2003 and was directed by a guy named Errol Morris, who also was an executive producer on National Bird, the first film I mentioned in this episode. By the way, this one and then my next film, my last one for this episode, are the only two out of this episode's dozen that were not made in the decade of the 2010s or the 20-teens or whatever you call it. This one and the next one were actually made in the decade prior to that, in the aughts, as it were. Which, again, kind of backs up my point that I made back in part one of this series, that I really think the last ten years or so have really been a golden age for documentary filmmaking. But anyway, this movie, The Fog of War, is basically an in-depth interview with Robert McNamara, who if you don't know, was the U.S. Secretary of Defense from 1961 to 1968. This interview was conducted in the early 2000s, at a time when McNamara was still in his mid-80s, 
and only about six or so years before McNamara died. So the film is him being interviewed also with some archival footage and audio and video worked in as well. The interview mostly revolves around questions having to do with war, including questions of morality and moral calculus and proportionality, as well as issues of uncertainty and perceptions and misperceptions, and how misperceptions, such as, for example, drastically misperceiving an event, or drastically misperceiving your enemy's thoughts and intentions and perceptions, can cause things to go off the rails in the proverbial fog of war. McNamara is a very interesting guy. In many ways, he is an absolute archetype of a technocrat, the embodiment of Woodrow Wilson's efficient administrator. McNamara, by the way, was always obsessed with data, especially data that could be quantified, and this obviously links him to many of the eugenicist leaders I mentioned in regard to the eugenics crusade. With that in mind, in many ways, looking at his involvement in World War II and then the Vietnam War, McNamara, who seems like a decent guy in sort of a personal sense, and is definitely not a dumb or unreflective guy, either, nonetheless helped devise and implement policies that killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people. And yet, he's a guy who is smart and reflective enough to eventually realize that at least some of his decisions were horribly wrong, and to at least feel some degree of guilt and responsibility. So, it is very interesting to hear him reflect on some of these things near the end of his life. It's also interesting to hear the instances where he kind of refuses to go down certain avenues of questioning, and some instances where he still makes at least partial excuses for people, such as Lyndon Johnson, even while he is criticizing him and the decisions he made. The documentary covers a bit on McNamara's service in World War II, where he worked under General Curtis LeMay in the bombing division of the U.S. Army Air Corps, first dealing with bombing of Europe and then later in the war Japan. And in this role, McNamara wasn't a pilot or a crewman on an actual aircraft, but instead a number cruncher and a strategist, whose job was to make U.S. bombing more quote-unquote efficient, which of course means blowing up more buildings and destroying more infrastructure, which of course means killing more people. Arguably the high point, so to speak, of this whole effort was the incendiary bombing of Tokyo in 1945, which destroyed more than half the city and is believed to have killed more people than either of the two A-bombings of Japan. In this part of the discussion, by the way, McNamara admits that he and Curtis LeMay's actions in regard to mass bombing of civilians in World War II would have been definitely considered war crimes if they had ended up on the losing side of the war. And he also says that LeMay actually said exactly this to him once as well. The discussion then covers what McNamara did between World War II and his assumption of the role of JFK Secretary of Defense, which was, if you don't know, as an executive at the Ford Motor Company which in the aftermath of World War II wasn't doing very well. McNamara brought his number-crunching skill and his talent and love of efficiency, and was very successful at turning Ford around. Among other things, he did this by coming up with cars that were more economical, and also cars that were much safer. To me, this shows how the nuts-and-bolts skills of data-crunching and making things efficient can be wonderful 
when applied in the voluntary, non-mass-murdering parts of the economy to things like making better goods for consumers. McNamara made Ford great again largely by running the company better and making better products. Contrast that with his involvement in two major wars, where his skills were instead used to make the incineration of human beings more quote-unquote efficient. So McNamara ultimately rose to be the president of Ford, but he didn't hold that job for very long until President-elect JFK tapped him to be Secretary of Defense. So this means that McNamara would be Secretary of Defense when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, which is discussed in the film a bit, and that, of course, he would also be there for a good chunk of the Vietnam War, because he stayed on for the majority of Johnson's years as president after Kennedy was killed. And McNamara kind of reveals that he was never fully sold on the Vietnam War. In fact, while Kennedy was still alive, McNamara had recommended and drawn up plans for a phased withdrawal of U.S. combat troops by 1965. But of course, after Kennedy got whacked, Lyndon Johnson quickly began escalating both the bombing of Vietnam as well as the amount of ground troops, until by the end of LBJ's presidency, there would be about half a million U.S. troops there. To me, some of the most interesting parts of the fog of war are when McNamara talks about the Gulf of Tonkin incident and the escalation of U.S. involvement that followed. McNamara reveals how, even to him as Secretary of Defense, the whole thing was pretty sketchy, with a lot of people jumping to conclusions about what was going on that were not justified, and many of which were later pretty well debunked. He ultimately concludes that of the two alleged attacks on the USS Maddox, the first one he believes did happen, but the second one did not, although he admits that some people question both attacks. He also points out that even if he's right that the first attack was real, it doesn't necessarily mean that it indicated that the North Vietnamese were getting more aggressive. It could have just been, you know, one commander of that one ship doing something without authorization or being told to do it by Hanoi. Which still makes it very questionable that even if the first attack was real, it actually necessitated or justified increased bombing and increased ground troops. You then get a combination of McNamara speaking in sort of the present of the film, plus LBJ's recordings of conversations from the mid-1960s, covering the years of escalation that followed, and you see how many people at the top actually seem to have known pretty early on that the whole war was fucked and very unlikely to be successful. For example, as early on as 1965, even LBJ himself at times sounded very doubtful that the U.S. could really achieve anything like victory in Vietnam, but nonetheless, he kept escalating the war anyway. And you see how these leaders, a lot of times, even when they kind of know what the right thing is to do, they're too much of cowards to stand up and do the right thing. McNamara, you know, 80-something-year-old McNamara in the film concludes also that the whole domino theory was totally flawed and that U.S. leaders completely misunderstood the Vietnamese communists and their intentions and perceptions. So this film is a very interesting, very rare occasion to see someone who was in a position like McNamara was actually, for the most part, reflecting pretty candidly on his career in a lot of the most controversial aspects of it. I really can't think of another in-depth interview of someone like this that's out there with an interviewer who's actually willing to press a bit. For example, I can't ever imagine Donald Rumsfeld 
ever sitting down for a similar sort of in-depth, long-form interview like this. So it's a rare window into how some of the people, the sort of technocratic types at the top of the empire, think about things. And McNamara is very complex at times. It's hard not to be sympathetic with him, but then at other times you remember, like, this guy's got a lot of blood on his hands. So it's, it's very complicated. To me, it's interesting to think about an alternate timeline in which McNamara never worked for the war machine. I don't think there was anything inherently kind of jingoistic or bloodlusty or warmongery about him as a person. He seems to have been just as happy to run forward as to run the war machine. I don't think he was a psychopath. I think instead, he represents a technocratic type, a sort of ultra-pragmatic engineering mindset with a knack and a fetish for efficiency. People like this are not inherently geared towards violence and aggression, but their semi-spectrum-y personality allows a certain sense of detachment. And so if they get co-opted by the military-industrial complex, through a combination of incentives and sort of propaganda about doing your duty to your country and all that stuff, these guys' skills can be used to do great evil. A lot of the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project, or who later worked on the H-bomb, would definitely fall into this category too. Left to their own devices in the private sector, these sorts of guys would likely be quite happy to design better consumer goods and things like this, but because of the incentives and allure of the war machine and the propaganda and all that, they often end up there, where their talent and skills are turned to the dark side, and they end up becoming examples of what Hannah Arendt called the banality of evil. So from more kind of like banal bureaucrats doing evil in a white-collar sort of way to some much more crude and crass types of evil in the form of violent gangsters, we have my last documentary for this episode, which is Cocaine Cowboys, which currently is available to rent on Prime for two ninety nine, and may be available elsewhere at no upcharge, but I'm not aware of it. This film came out in 2006 and was directed by Billy Corbin. Not Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins, but Billy Corbin with a B in the middle. This documentary is probably one of the more famous ones on my list. It covers the heyday of massive amounts of cocaine being smuggled into South Florida in the 1970s and 80s, and the huge amounts of violence and corruption that came about because of it. There's sort of two sides to the story. There's the smugglers themselves, who are mostly not violent, personally. And then there are the thugs and enforcers and kingpins and so on, that are extremely violent. So, you get coverage of smugglers, many of whom are actually quite charming, like John Roberts and Mickey Monday. And their story is very interesting. These are guys generally not personally involved in any of the violent stuff but who were using planes and boats to smuggle the coke in, and who were absolute geniuses and had just amazing guts when it came to smuggling the coke in. And their stories are very interesting and amusing because their methods were just so sophisticated and so ballsy. But then we also have the really violent psychopaths who were involved in the coke trade. Like the hitmen and enforcers and those that they worked for. Most famously, probably, Griselda Blanco, the so-called godmother, who was a female psychopath kingpin, or I guess queenpin, who would have people and sometimes their whole family slaughtered at the drop of a hat. 
and also Revi Ayala, one of her top hitmen. These people are all psychopaths and sociopaths, as far as my layman's opinion is concerned. It's amazing the calm detachment with which they can talk about, you know, killing somebody or whatever. So this film mixes together some of the coverage of the actual smuggling, which is often amusing, with some of the rather dark stuff as far as, you know, hits and gang wars and that sort of thing. And so, there is some graphic stuff in this film, so fair warning as far as that goes. It also covers the insane amount of both corruption and prosperity that went along with the cocaine traffic in South Florida during this time period. Miami, in particular, boomed in the 1970s and 80s economically, when much of the country was not booming. But of course, violence and crime and corruption were also booming at the same time. And the corruption was rampant in the police department as well, in part because of all the incentives of all that black market money. Just like in the days of alcohol prohibition, a lot of cops became corrupt because there was just so much money to be made if you ended up on the take. And also in part because at the time, because Miami's population and economy were booming so much, the Miami PD was expanding its manpower so quickly that standards were being lowered or ignored for things like background checks and trying to filter out potential bad apples. The film mentions that in one particular graduating class of the Miami Police Academy, in the early 80s, every single one of them ended up either being killed on the job or eventually went to jail. So there's some stuff in this film that's kind of like 7-5 type stuff, if you remember that film from the last episode in this series. Ultimately, by the late 80s, enough people were getting busted and killed, and many were starting to turn snitch in order to save themselves, that the cocaine smuggling and wars were tamped down in the Miami area. Of course, this didn't actually do anything in terms of winning the larger war on drugs in the United States, because of course, it's whack-a-mole. As soon as you start taking out one part of the narcotics trade, different criminal outfits are simply going to step up elsewhere and smuggle in through other places. Now, I grew up in the Miami area and then uh, in the neighboring Fort Lauderdale area, one county up, as a little kid in kind of the latter phases and aftermath of all this. And definitely, as a little kid in the mid to late 80s, you definitely heard things and just got a sense that South Florida was a dangerous and unpredictable place where crazy shit went down. Even setting aside all the drug-related violence... It was just overall a wild and dangerous-seeming time. Just a couple of other examples I'll mention that have nothing to do with cocaine. Adam Walsh, John Walsh's son, was abducted and killed the same year I was born, 1981, in South Florida. Which, as you may know, eventually led to John Walsh starting America's Most Wanted. And while I was still a few months away from being born when this happened, we still heard a lot about it growing up, and he was abducted from a mall that I went to plenty of times as a kid. And then another thing I do actually remember hearing about when it actually happened was the 1986 FBI shootout in Miami, where a bunch of FBI agents got into a gunfight with two ex-military kind of violent bank robbers, and the bank robbers managed to kill or wound pretty much all of the FBI agents and almost won the gunfight, except finally one of the agents, though severely wounded, managed to take them out. So it was just a wild, dangerous-feeling time in general, even setting aside all the drug-related stuff. 
Now, South Florida isn't as ludicrously violent now as it was in the 70s and 80s, but it's still a place where there's a fair amount of con men and corruption and over-the-top characters who seem to have no real ethics. And Billy Corbin, who is from South Florida, seems to have an interesting love-hate relationship with the area, where he sees all of the insanity and darkness, but also he's good at finding the darkly humorous aspects of it too, which I can definitely appreciate. Even though, almost nothing would make me want to move back down to South Florida ever again. I moved out of the area after I graduated from high school, and have never resided south of I-4 since then, and rarely visit. But because it is where I was born and raised, I can definitely appreciate Corbin's coverage of some of South Florida's craziest scandals in his documentaries. It's sort of like someone from a really dysfunctional family, who realizes how dysfunctional it is, but who's also able to find some of it amusing and even on occasion charming, though in an insane, gonzo, dark sort of way. Which my sense of humor often tends to run to the darker side, and perhaps that's partly because of the time and place in which I was born and grew up, which is basically the same as Corbin. He was born in 1978, so he's basically the same age as my sister. I was born in 81, but both Corbin and I were born and raised in South Florida in that time period of kind of peak South Florida insanity, which is undoubtedly why Corbin's films resonate with me personally so much. So I can't help but honorable mention a bunch of his other documentaries that are not quite as famous. There is, of course, Cocaine Cowboys 2, which isn't as good as Cocaine Cowboys 1, but it's, you know, not bad. But some other films by Corbin that I really like would be, first off, Square Grouper, which is about guys who ran marijuana into South Florida in the 70s and 80s who were very different from the Cocaine Cowboys. Then there is The U, which is about the University of Miami football program back in its late 20th century heyday and just how off the rails it got with scandals. Then there's Dogfight, Dog, of course, D-A-W-G, which is about black market, unsanctioned backyard MMA fights in South Florida. And then the most recent Billy Corbin documentary I'm aware of is Screwball, which is about the baseball doping scandal in the early 20th century, which once again, you guessed it, originated in South Florida. Florida is basically an open-air insane asylum. And South Florida is the wing of it that's reserved for the most profoundly disturbed inmates. And what I really love about Corbin's films is that he manages to capture this off-the-rails milieu and to make things funny and ironic even when he's covering some pretty fucked-up shit. So there you go the second of my three dozen recommended documentaries for you to watch during Teotihuacan. And if you want the last dozen, sign up to support the DHP at five bucks per month or more at Patreon or Subscribestar if you're not already doing so. I had hoped to get this particular episode out sooner, back when much of the country was still on full quarantine, but I got bogged down in a bunch of stuff, including finishing up my spring classes at the day job all online, which ended up being even more of a bunch of time-consuming busy work than I had expected, but I got through it and it's behind me for now. What'll happen in regard to fall semester? Who the hell knows at this point? So now, as this episode is coming out, the lockdown is easing up at least in some states, including my own. But I still hope you find some good stuff to watch from this list 
that you hadn't been aware of before, and I hope you'll find these things entertaining and thought-provoking. Even if you live in a place that's beginning to quote-unquote reopen, still in most places it's slow and partial and piecemeal, so you're likely still spending more time at home doing stuff like watching streaming videos than you normally would, even if you are going to work and even if you are able to occasionally go out and go to a restaurant or whatever. And if you live in some of the really crazy-ass overreacting places, like New York City or L.A., well, you might still be even more locked down than we ever got at the peak of it here in Florida. So if you're in that boat, I think you'll definitely appreciate any recommendations for stuff to watch that I can give you. By the way, not to pat myself on the back too much, but it seems like my gut feeling since these things first started to heat up with the coronavirus back in March were correct. That being my concerns that the state's responses to the virus, the economic fallout of both the virus itself and the state's actions, and then the public hysteria in the face of all of this, these things definitely, definitely, clearly seem to be a much, much bigger set of threats and problems in the big picture than just the virus itself a la carte. Day by day, the virus seems to be right now revealing itself to be, for most people, much less of a real threat than it was made out to be a month or two ago. While the reaction of the state, the economic fallout of everything, and the reactions of many in the public to all of this stuff is revealing itself to be worse day by day, to be as bad as I feared and unfortunately may end up being even worse than that. Though, of course, I don't think it's inevitable and I hope that doesn't come to pass. But I hate to say I told you so, but I think I kind of did. Crisis and Leviathan, my friends, crisis and Leviathan. But I hope you're doing okay. I hope you're doing the best you can in this crazy situation. I hope you're staying healthy, especially if you're someone in a vulnerable situation, medically speaking. I hope you're hanging on to your job or your business. I hope you're keeping your sanity. And I hope you're doing everything feasible to come out of all this stronger than you were going in. To make the crisis your own opportunity personally, and not just an opportunity for Leviathan. So I hope you'll continue to stay safe, stay sane, and take care. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. 
And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out. And you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.